This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and salut Babette. Tonight, I'm inquiring into what it's really like for scientists and writers, you know, journalists, when climate change is their day job, when it's an all-consuming thing. We'll hear from Dr. Joel Gerdius reading her article, Witnessing the Unthinkable, and also from Professor Johan Rockström from the Potsdam Institute. Nigel Topping will follow, who is the UK's high-level climate action champion, and then Marion Wilkinson talking to Bob Carr about her book, The Climate Club. But first, Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the Wurundjeri people upon whose land we are broadcasting at 3CR, and to the Gadigal people where we are heard at Radio Skid Row. We'll start with a song composed by Auntie Ruby to open a Beyond Zero Emissions event. It's called Ode to Mother Earth. Look after the land, Look after she is our mother. mother. Honour each person, honour each sister and brother. A sister and brother, honour the elder, honour the elder. Joel Gerges is an award-winning climate scientist at the Australian National University. She's also an IPCC author and her book Sunburnt Country is a fascinating history of our climate. We spoke to her back then when it was published but I didn't want to bother her this time after reading her emotional piece in the monthly called Witnessing the Unthinkable I just felt it would be an intrusion on her time. So I asked Mark Spencer from Climactic Podcasts if I could use his recording of her reading that piece. He's a great friend of Beyond Zero Emissions and he agreed. So here is Joelle letting us in on what it's like when waking your waking hours are consumed by the reality of climate change and then at night. Witnessing the Unthinkable by Joel Gerges. It's 3am and I'm awake, again. 
It's no exaggeration to say that my work as a climate scientist now routinely keeps me up at night. I keep having dreams of being inundated, huge monstrous waves bearing down on me in slow motion. Sometimes I stop resisting and allow myself to be sucked in. Other times I watch as a colossal tsunami builds offshore. I panic, immediately sensing that I don't stand a chance. I watch the horizon disappear before turning to bolt to higher ground. Around me, people are calmly going about their business. High water is menacing my subconscious, trying to help me grapple with the overwhelm I feel in my waking life. My teeth ache from the nocturnal grinding that my dentist now just acknowledges with a sigh. As one of the dozen or so Australian lead authors involved in writing the physical science basis of the sixth assessment report of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, it's no wonder I'm on edge. Before the coronavirus pandemic swept the world, the scientific community was reeling from the most catastrophic bushfire season in Australian history. We all watched on in horror as the fires savaged our country, releasing more carbon dioxide in a single bushfire season than the country emits in an entire year. An arc of destruction tore through our native forests, from the subtropical rainforests of Queensland, through the temperate forests of southern New South Wales and eastern Victoria, all the way across to the coastal bushland of South Australia. A terrifying amount of Australia's World Heritage areas were burnt, at least 80% of the Blue Mountains protected area, and 53% of the ancient Gondwanan rainforest network. These are the last of the last of such precious places. Areas that have clung on since the age of dinosaurs, forced to contend with the processes of evolution playing out in fast forward. Instead of adapting gradually over thousands or millions of years, entire ecosystems were radically transformed in the space of a single summer, not even a nanosecond in geologic time. The urgent national conversation we needed to have about climate change following this collective trauma never happened. Instead, we were all forced to retreat into our bolt holes as a deadly plague took hold. We abandoned the global common and life shrunk to an intensely personal scale. And there we have remained, in suspended animation, waiting for the health crisis to pass, for some air of normality to return to our lives. Through it all, scientists across the world have been working around the clock to progress the IPCC's monumental assessment of the global climate, a cycle that typically takes six years to complete. As part of this effort, a group of Australian scientists published an analysis of the latest generation of climate models, assessing what they are telling us about Australia's future. After years of refinements, the new models now contain significant improvements in the simulation of complex physical processes associated with clouds and convection, essentially the transfer of heat through the fluid motion of the atmosphere in the ocean. These updates have influenced estimates of what is termed climate sensitivity, a measure of the relationship between changes in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere and the corresponding level of warming. The results have provided an alarming revision of the temperature increase we thought possible. It is something IPCC scientists are grappling to understand and communicate, as it has dire implications for the feasibility of achieving the Paris Agreement targets for reducing global emissions. The current goal is to keep global warming to well within two degrees above pre-industrial levels and as close to 1.5 degrees as possible. This is to avoid instabilities in the planetary processes that have kept our climate steady for close to 12,000 years. 
that is, for all of modern human civilization. According to this new study, led by scientists at the CSIRO and the Bureau of Meteorology, the worst-case scenario could see Australia warm up to 7 degrees above pre-industrial levels by the end of the century. On average, the results on 20 models show a warming of 4.5 degrees with a range between 2.7 and 6.2. As two of the study's authors, Michael Gross and Julie Arblaster, noted in the conversation, the new values are a worrying possibility that no one wants, but one we must still grapple with. They quoted the researchers of another recent climate study who said, what scares us is not that the model's equilibrium climate sensitivity is wrong, but it might be right. Another profoundly significant result is buried 16 pages deep into the paper. The scientists show that this revision now means that two degrees of global warming is likely to be reached sometime around 2040, based on our current high emissions trajectory. The implications of this are unimaginable. We may witness planetary collapse far sooner than we once thought. I was so disturbed by the new model results that I found it impossible to get back to my work. How can we not understand that life as we know it is unravelling before our eyes? That we have unleashed intergenerational warming that will be with us for millennia? If this really is the end of days, how can a climate scientist like me make the best use of the time I have left? In recent years, I've looked to brave colleagues who are becoming increasingly vocal about the climate emergency. One of the scientists I admire most is Professor Terry Hughes, one of the world's leading experts on coral reefs and our foremost authority on the Great Barrier Reef. In late March, just before the national lockdown took effect, Terry and his colleagues rushed to conduct an aerial survey of the third mass bleaching event to strike the reef since 2016. It is the first time that severe bleaching impacted upon virtually the entire range of the Great Barrier Reef, including large parts of the southern reef spared during the 2016 and 2017 events. It's hard to hide from the reality that the entire system is in an advanced state of ecological collapse. In desperation, Terry took to Twitter, sharing his experience of surveying the carnage. It's been a shitty, exhausting day on the Great Barrier Reef. I feel like an art lover wandering through the Louvre as it burns to the ground. By the end of his fieldwork, he was a broken man. I'm not sure I have the fortitude to do this again. The honesty of his despair allowed my own to crystallise into a visceral sense of dread that is deepening by the day. We have arrived at a point in human history I think of as the great unravelling. Recently I shared a statistic with my climatology students as I explained the latest mass bleaching event. 99% of the world's tropical coral reefs will disappear with 2 degrees of global warming. This future no longer feels impossibly far away, it's happening before our eyes. Looking around the room, I couldn't help but feel sorry for them. They have inherited a planetary mess, yet are more distracted and disconnected from each other, themselves and the natural world than any generation that has ever lived. As each season passes, it's painfully clear that we are witnessing the destabilisation of the Earth's climate. There are things we can still save, but it's now too late for some areas such as the Great Barrier Reef and tracts of ancient rainforest. In Australia, we wear our badge of resilience with a hefty dose of national pride. But scientists on the front line of the climate crisis understand that some things in life, once gone, can never be replaced. If the new models turn out to be right, 
there is no way we can adapt to the catastrophic level of warming projected for a country like Australia. Even placing the new models aside, the 2019 UN Environment Program's Emissions Gap Report shows that a continuation of current global emission reduction policies will see the Earth's average temperature rise a staggering 3.4 to 3.9 degrees by 2100. If we continue along our current path, by any measure, we will sail past the Paris Agreement targets in a handful of decades. Some of our most precious ecosystems will never recover, including some of what was destroyed in Australia during our black summer. Gutted landscapes will struggle on, trying to regain some semblance of an equilibrium. But the truth is, the destruction we have unleashed will reverberate throughout the ages. We are witnessing the unthinkable, facing the unimaginable. Psychologically, many people already sense it's the beginning of the end. But is this the end of the era of fossil fuels, or life as we know it? As the planetary crisis accelerates, we must confront the reality that what we do now will forever alter the course of humanity and all life on Earth. My dreams are warning me that a metaphorical tsunami is approaching, threatening to destroy all that we hold dear. We must wake up and rush to higher ground before it is too late. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years we've been using direct action, citizen science and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and Monaro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Sweden. You'd think Sweden is way ahead on climate action. And it is, but here we see Professor in Earth System Science, Johan Rockström, struggling with a fossil fuel problem about oil refining, very like our struggle with bringing new gas or hydrogen made using gas into the market. It's very tempting, and I'm a bit chastened to hear that we're not the only country struggling with this. Johan is a Swedish scientist and he is director of the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research in Berlin. We can hear his anguish when he says we can no longer exclude crossing irreversible tipping points. Yet he's excited to be part of the exponential leap he sees as the US commits to a legal framework to force emissions reduction and then Xi Jinping has announced carbon neutrality peaking in 2030 and reaching completion by 2050. He also sees potential for another leap if Biden wins in the US election and he promises $2 trillion in a climate plan that will trigger a Green New Deal. First, here's Johan Rockström at the global broadcast called We Don't Have Time. Here we have uh, two giant regions committing towards what must translate into exponential 
the exponential roadmaps. And of course, the only thing we're waiting for now is what happens on the 4th of November in the US. And uh, if that transition would occur as well, then of course, we can really start talking of turning a corner to start really scaling and implementing exactly what you've been discussing throughout the day. Now, the necessity of this is the focus of this talk. And I don't need to kind of emphasize for, for this group that we are in the Anthropocene, a reminder that even the COVID-19 is a manifestation of the scale and speed of the hyper-connected world we live in. We don't have like one isolated health crisis. We have an interconnected climate crisis with the health crisis, with the ecosystem crisis. We know this from scientific evidence that COVID-19 is a zoonotic viral spillover from wildlife, potentially via domestic animals to humans that this only occurs because of unsustainable human penetration into natural habitats, risky handling of wet markets and wildlife trade, which then can propel itself towards a global disaster through an hyper-connected world. So what happens in one corner of the planet can send immediate crisis shockwaves across the whole world, just like undermining the global commons that regulates the stability of the climate system can send in voices if we let ecosystems collapse, ice sheets irreversibly melt, or the ocean heat circulation be destabilized. So we're now in a, in a completely new juncture, giving new scientific support, or let's say re-emphasizing the support for exponential roadmaps. I think it's quite interesting how the BBC yesterday showed in the global opinion poll that people understand this. They even understand that climate change as, is as as serious as the coronavirus. Just look at the global numbers. 71% agreed to the statement that climate change is as serious as the corona crisis. And the corona crisis is the most devastating shock to the global economy since the 1930s. We've seen global emissions reduce at a pace which aligns with the carbon law of cutting emissions by half every decade. Nothing to celebrate because we can under no circumstances save the planet by ruining human uh, economy and, and, um, and jobs. But on the other hand, it just shows the magnitude of change we're facing. And this is incredibly important for us to recognize. It is a transformative moment. The impacts we're seeing across the world already at a 1.2 degree Celsius warming. I don't have to remind you about this. Just to share with you the nervousness that is uh, eating itself deeper and deeper into the scientific fabric, 38 degrees Celsius measured this summer in Siberia with forest fires in the Arctic, with permafrost carbon um, fluxes occurring in abrupt levels that we had not expected. So these are changes that are happening faster than scientific uh, assessments have been able to assess previously. Just a few weeks back, you have the United in Science second issue coming out from the IPCC and the World Meteorological Organization. Look at the orange wedge there. 2016 to 2020, set to be the warmest five-year period on record. Now, we know that the last 20 years have the 19 warmest years on record. Why is it the 20 out of 20? Because 1998 is just outside of that 20 period, the warmest, most amplified El Nino year ever which knocked over 30 or 40% in some regions of tropical coral reefs to permanent 
permanent collapse. Now, this is starting to cause also nervousness and impacts outside of the environmental or let's say health core spheres. You have certainly followed many of these uh, increasing evidence that global warming and ecosystem change is having amplified impacts on social instability, meaning that what happens in, in Chad, in Niger, in Mali, in the Arab Spring, in Syria, in Sudan, has today so strong couplings with global warming that we can no longer detangle uh, conflict, displacement and migration from our destabilization of environmental systems at regional and global scale. So it's not a surprise that we have over 100 countries and regions having declared a state of climate emergency. It is dramatic that science now suggests that we may have to consider declaring a state of planetary emergency, that we're transgressing so many planetary boundaries that we are putting ourselves at risk of destabilizing the Earth system. Now we're on a journey that will take us crashing through that two degrees Celsius point in just you know, 20 to 30 years time if we continue burning fossil fuels as today and can take us to over three and a half degrees Celsius by the end of this century, a point we haven't seen for the past five to 10 million years. Isn't that enough for us to act? I would say just this graph on its own, in my mind, puts everything aside and tells us exponential transitions is an absolute necessity. This is coupled by our latest assessment of what is happening with the planet. We have in November 2019, just before COVID-19, the, the publication of the latest mapping of the systems that may shift from stable, self-cooling systems, tipping over to potentially self-amplifying warming systems. Here is the mapping of the nine of the known 15 so-called tipping elements that are showing signs to be on the move. And not that they are at a tipping point, but they show uh, concerning signs of either slowdown or increased variability that can take them closer to tipping points. As you see here, we have the West Antarctic ice shelf, the Arctic and the coral reef systems that very likely already have crossed. But you also see the Amazon rainforest and the Atlantic circulation of heat that are showing worrying signs of being at a position, for example, where the North Atlantic Gulf Stream has slowed down by 50% and that these are interconnected. This gives us even more support that we've truly entered what we call the decisive decade for humanity's future on Earth, that now is the time to bend the curves to start the transition towards a decarbonized, carbon-neutral, sustainable future for humanity within a safe and just operating space on Earth. This is truly an exciting moment also in terms of this being starting to sink in. We, we find at the Potsdam Institute through our climate economics research that one necessity in the whole regulatory framework is, is to have a carbon price in place and a carbon price that we can today calculate more and more precisely when factoring not only environmental costs, but also social costs of carbon. And that the level needs to be at least 50 euros per ton of carbon dioxide to increase up to the level of something like 130 euros per ton of carbon dioxide in the next 10 years to then aim on the long term towards 200 and even above 
Now, this might sound like big numbers, but even ASEA, and then Henrik may be referring back to that, has itself said that it may commit itself in the transport sector to a carbon price of 250 euros per ton of carbon dioxide to be able to, you know, create the right incentives of the market for investments in, in hydrogen and fuel cell driven heavy transport and, and electrification infrastructure across the European market. I mean, this is just showing how business and science is coming together on, on the trajectory. Thank you very much, Johan Rockström. Um, and thank you for also painting initially the global, the planetary picture, even if it is dark and at some points even gloomy. But it's important for us to understand the baseline of, of the, what's happening. Um, most of you, the viewers here, uh, recognize and know that you are Swedish, even if you work in, in the, the Potsdam Institute in Berlin now. And in Sweden, there is um, there is a big topic here on on, on fuels. Uh, the Swedish government is yet to decide whether or not to allow the uh, the expansion of uh, oil refinery. Uh, they're called Primraf. Um, Prim has the ambition to to uh, produce the fuels in a more uh, environmentally efficient way, uh, but it's still fossil based. What, as a scientist, is your take on this? So you want to put me into the debate on Prim, Lisa Sheen and Sweden? Okay. <laughs> um, we know that you yeah. have opinions on this, so we couldn't resist the chance. <laughs> well. You see, the, the, the situation is, is in a way quite simple, but it's very sensitive in the Swedish political debate. The simplicity is the following. We need to decarbonize the world economy in the next 30 years, which means that we have a finite global carbon budget. And that global carbon budget to reach 1.5 is only 320 gigatons of carbon dioxide. Divide that by 40, it gives us eight more years to emit at the level that we're doing today. This is a finite number that has to be distributed across all nations in the world. Now, the European Union is moving ahead very fast. Sweden is moving ahead very fast. We can do more efficient um, you know, refineries than many other parts of the world. But because the whole world needs to now move decisively towards decarbonizing every sector at every time step, then of course, in that context, there is no room for any massive investment in fossil fuel-based infrastructure anywhere in the world. So in that sense, it rules out Prim and it uh, violates Sweden's uh, legally binding commitments to the Paris Climate Agreement. Now, so that, that's the kind of the scientific simple stance. Then it's, of course, a, a more difficult stance when you talk about the European emission trading scheme and will Europe really reduce the cap of allowable emission uh, trading uh, credits and, and will the world truly, you know, commit itself to, to follow this path that science says is necessary? And if it doesn't, then, of course, you could argue that that Prem is doing less bad than others will be doing. So I can understand these arguments, but, but scientifically they do not hold. You're listening to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show, and we're hearing from people whose day job is climate action, who are consumed by it. Now it's possible to be upbeat if you are called a champion. And here's Nigel Topping at the We Don't Have Time International Broadcast. He is the UK high-level climate action champion. That's his job title. 
and he says that we're headed for exponential change. He's all about coalitions of businesses accelerating a zero-carbon economy. I wanted to talk about exponential change, and I want to remind everybody that the only way that industrial transformation has ever happened is exponentially. So we, we know the way this movie plays out. It's been seen many times before, horses to cars, um, valves to transistors, analog to digital film, um, the rise of the internet, um, the rise of mobile phones. I remember um, I celebrate my 21st wedding anniversary tomorrow. I can remember driving to my um, wedding with my wife 21 years ago, and she told me she'd divorce me if I ever got a mobile phone. Uh, well, we're still, to, we're still together, and, we're, and everyone's got a mobile phone now. And the key thing about exponential change is that it seems like it's never going to happen, and then suddenly it takes off, and suddenly it's all, all over. So, I mean, I just want to really commend Johan and the Exponential Roadmap team on the way they've been communicating this. The way I like to say it is if, and I'm particularly obsessed by the, the EV transition, because I worked in the automotive sector in the first half of my career. If anyone ever tells you, yeah, but it's only 4% of market share that EVs have got at the moment. Just ask them, how quickly did that double from two to four? Because that's what matters in exponential growth. It's the doubling rate. And if it's two years, then you go from two to four in two years. 4% still doesn't seem like much. Then you go eight, 16, 32, 64, and it's all over within 10 years. And, and I think that the EV transition is a really good example of how bad we are at imagining exponential change and how inevitable it is. In 2016, after the Paris Agreement, the IEA was saying we'll still be building combustion engine cars until 2070. 2070. A couple of years later, UK and France said, no, 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 we'll, we'll, we'll ban them in 2040. Then we had Mercedes, the inventor of the combustion engine, saying we'll stop building them in 2039. Then we have um, a bunch of cities saying they'll have emissions-free zones in the 2030s. Yesterday, California, fifth biggest economy in the world, one of the biggest uh, markets for cars, said 2035. Um, and we know that the UK is going to announce the results of its consultation, which will be more ambitious than that um, in the next few weeks. So from 2070, our expectation from the experts at the IEA in 2016 to maybe 2030 in 2020, the future's come forward by 40 years in four years. That's also why I'm so excited that um, the, this, this amazing collaboration of Exponential Roadmap, International Chamber of Commerce, uh, and We Mean Business have, have launched the, the SME Climate Hub. I think I just caught uh, Johan talking about millions of millions of companies. We know there are there are millions and millions. I think there's 45 million SMEs in the ICC membership. So this is really important because so many of them are in, in, uh, are in, are in the supply chains of major multinationals who are committing to zero. We've seen the number of companies. Um, committing to net zero grow very significantly since we launched the, the race to zero in June. And of course, it's a full value chain commitment. It's not just your own operations, it's everything upstream and downstream. So those companies need all the SMEs in their value chains to commit to zero. So thank you for all the leadership from ICC, Women Business and Exponential Roadmap on that. Last thing I'd say is that business needs clear policy signals. We talked about the ambition loop. It doesn't matter how ambitious business is, the leaders can't get too far ahead of the market because at some point, there's a penalty for being too far ahead um, if the regulations aren't creating a level playing field. So also really exciting to see that the EU are heading in the right direction, expecting a strong announcement from the UK on the fifth anniversary of Paris on the 12th of December. And of course, the great news yesterday from China that they're committing uh, to net zero in the 2050s. So lots of good signs that the ambition loop is up and running and we're headed for exponential change to solve the climate crisis in the 2040s. Thank you. I'd like to ask you, what key message do you have to the politicians of the COP to make it possible to have the emissions by 2030? The, there's two messages, really. One is raise your own ambition. Take confidence in the exponential growth in businesses committing to net zero 
2050, 2040, even 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 earlier, and the number of cities, you know, more than half the world's population. So set your own um, net zero um, long-term commitment, and then and then entrench that in law and policies that get us to halve emissions by 2030. So take take faith and take 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 positive encouragement from the great work that, that many organizations and many businesses and cities are doing around the world. We can only do it if we do it together and everyone's relying on um, on, on governments to step up and set the, the guidelines. The other thing is go to Glasgow to finish off the negotiations of the Paris rule book. We need, we need good faith, um, compromise. Um, it's a complex technical negotiation. Um, it's the last 10% of the Paris rule book, but it really matters so that we can get on with the business of the decade of delivery. Do you have any, any even more specific messages when it comes to making this possible of having for businesses? Yeah, I mean, I think we need policy signals that drive action in the next five years. So not just a long term target, but exactly. Um, so um, every sector needs the policy signal which says here's the long term direction and here's where we're going. And then the appropriate policy measures, they could be a mixture of carbon pricing standards. Um, in some cases where it's very early, like the hydrogen economy might need some um, government support, to early stage projects. So the, the, the government policies need to be tailored to where we're at on that S curve. If, we're, if we've already found the solution like electric vehicles, just set the end goal and mandate it and the market will take care of that. If we're at the beginning, like with hydrogen, you need to encourage the cost down until we get the, the market onto the S-curve. What is your reflection on Christiana Figueres' uh, message before uh, for the uh, politicians at, at the COP to look at the businesses and just follow their lead? Uh, I'm a huge fan of Christiana. I would say... Um, the, the the policymakers who are laggards should follow the business lead and the businesses who are laggards should follow the policy lead because there are leaders in not every domain there are there are, there are um there are countries committing to net zero 2050 or even sooner as there are businesses but it's not universal so i think look to your peers and 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 your contemporaries in the in the business space or the policy space depending where you're from um and and They've set the bar. It's time to follow it because that's the direction we're going. This is an inevitable transition, right? It's not a choice. We're going to get to zero. We're going to have to. It's, a, it's an existential. Um, the science is, is just getting worse. The IPCC will publish some more reports next year. The risks are growing every time the scientists assess the risk of 1.5 degrees. So it's inevitable. Get ahead of the curve or you're going to lose. Look after the land. She is a mother. Honor each person as sister and brother. Honor the elders, share with each other. Then rain will come, the land to cover. Then rain will come, the land to cover. Look after the land, Look after she is a mother, she is a mother, honor each person, honor each sister and brother, a sister and brother, honor the elder, honor the share elder. with each other, share with each other, will come the rain, will come the land to cover, the rain will come the rain. Come the land to come. Look after the land. She is a mother. She is a mother. Honor 
Wilkinson is a very highly esteemed Australian journalist and author. Her new book, The Carbon Club, shows how consumed she has been with the question of why climate politics has become so toxic in Australia. She brings the shadowy figures behind government decisions into the light. These people are the Carbon Club. She has witnessed the tragedy of coral scientists seeing corals bleached to extinction and being relentlessly attacked by climate deniers. She is in conversation here with Bob Carr at the Institute for Sustainable Futures in Sydney. I think it's interesting in your book how this, this figure, who most Australians wouldn't, wouldn't have paid much attention to, Corey Bernardi, walks out of stage right to centre stage and having been coached in Washington implements policies of denying climate action. And I, uh, it made me think about this challenge, that, that climate change denial is very much an American heresy. And it was transplanted from the United States <clears throat> to Australia, very much with the help of Corey Bernardi. Well, Corey Bernardi certainly played a key role. And I think that what he did was he bought brought to the debate a successful way of using this in internal party politics. Prior to that, the climate sceptics had essentially been making their arguments uh, to business, to the public, through the think tanks, and attempting to really make headway in the Liberal Party. I think what people like Cory Bernardi helped them do was make headway inside the Liberal Party and really sharpen the divisions. Of course, Bernardi himself, and he would kind of admit this almost in the interviews I did with him, was really a tool. He understood there were more powerful figures in the party using him. And in fact, I think one of the reasons he ended up talking to me was that he ended up feeling discarded by the end of the process because he didn't get the ministerial position he thought he would get for giving so much help ultimately to Tony Abbott in that fight against carbon policy, which helped put Abbott in the Prime Minister's seat. Yeah, he even did, according to the book, a a training course with Conservative Americans in how to mobilise opinion to kill off action on climate change. So he's learning about, about building a database of motivated Conservatives, He's learning about directing attention at crucial parts of the political decision-making apparatus. Um, And he comes back to Australia with these techniques and, in effect, presses a button 
in 2009 and sees enormous pressure created within the Liberal Party to do in Malcolm Turnbull, who's working with Rudd on this package, and to elevate Tony Abbott, who pledges to end it. Yeah, and it was interesting because one of the people who was really taken with what Bernardi was trying to do, which was very much under the surface at the time. The, you know, the press gallery was following the big fights with Abbott, Nick Minchin, who of course was a key uh, sceptic on the the opposition benches, uh, key position in the Senate. They were fighting uh, Malcolm Turnbull. And so all the press gallery attention was on that. But beneath the surface, Bernardi and his supporters were very much operating within the grassroots of the right of the Liberal Party. That's who they were mobilising to, as you say, you know, get these email campaigns going, the phone calls to the to the offices of the Liberal Party backbenchers, uh, really putting pressure on that way. And it was very curious that, well probably not so much curious as fascinating, that when this was ultimately successful, Hugh Morgan, who was a key figure behind the scenes as well, uh, pushing this approach, he wrote this report for the Lavoisier Group, one of the big sceptic think tanks, praising these kind of actions and saying that he saw it as essentially the grassroots of the Liberal Party rising up to, as he put it, defeat green despotism. And for me, that kind of language, those kind of tactics, really elevated these politics, I think, to the to a level of... Um, to a level level of toxicity almost that we hadn't seen in Australia before. As we know, Julia Gillard did do a deal with Bob Brown, did bring in a policy, but because it was a Labor Greens policy, it became an absolute lightning rod uh, for Tony Abbott and the coalition. And if anything, the politics got even more toxic on climate change and the issue uh, became kind of, I suppose, explosive for all the political leaders. Even though I'd covered this issue for quite some time, I didn't quite appreciate how important challenging the science was to those people. Uh, And I mean, taking it from the proposition that they didn't believe the science, but as one of the leading Washington skeptics said to me, we had to challenge the science because if we didn't challenge the science, the people who wanted to do something like about climate change had the moral imperative on their side and we looked like we were just being selfish and protecting vested interests. We had to challenge the science for that reason. Otherwise, the moral imperative would stay with those who wanted to act on climate change. And they ended up doing it even when the evidence was, to many of us, incontrovertible, like the deterioration of Australia's Great Barrier Reef. Now, you've got three chapters on that, and you follow the debates of scientists committed to protecting a healthy reef with the people undercutting them. You know, when you look at the reef, 
It is such an incredible uh, demonstration, I think, of what is happening with climate change. And uh, Will Steppen, uh, quite a prominent uh, climate scientist quoted in the book, says, you know, likes to say that the bleachings we're seeing on the reef is like a smoking gun on climate change. Uh, it's very hard to refute when you look at what's happening there. But I think, again, that is the very reason why the climate scientists who deal with the reef, the reef scientists, have been such an object of attack by the sceptic movement in Australia. And, you know, in a way, I think that's very tragic because what is happening on the reef and the research that Australian reef scientists contribute to the science of climate change is enormously important. And you can see that, Bob, when we've had, uh, you know, in the last five years, three really significant bleaching episodes on the reef. And you look at the water temperatures uh, and their rise at the same time. And, it, you know, it is very clear what's happening. And I think you know, the um, Marine Park Authority, the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority chief scientist, David Wackenfeld, keeps on saying, you know, that the 1.5 degree target to try and keep the temperature rise somewhere around that is absolutely crucial in his view for preserving the Great Barrier Reef. A Biden win backed by a Democrat majority in the Senate We'll, we'll see Australia somewhat isolated on all of these fronts, talking up gas, not, not making that 2050 commitment. Well, I think all eyes, frankly, in the area of climate change, the people who are really interested in what is going to happen policy-wise, whether here or in the UN talks, are all focused on this next US presidential election. Without doubt, it is going to be one of the most important elections as far as climate change goes. If Biden wins, uh, he is under a lot of pressure within the party to push forward strongly on climate change legislation and funding. I think that will, as you say, put Australia under pressure because, as you know, Biden has openly in his program talked about carbon tariffs on manufacturing, on products. This, I think, will be a big issue for Australia. And it comes at a time when, as we've seen with the Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, and the Energy Minister, Angus Taylor, are talking about you know, this gas-led recovery, but they really see it as playing a key role in Australia's manufacturing industry, as does the Australian Workers' Union, very important union within the Labor Party. Now, if the US starts seriously talking about carbon tariffs, and if the Europeans do, the question is, where will that leave an Australian manufacturing industry that is reliant on fossil fuel even if it's gas, which is slightly better than, uh, than coal in the climate stakes. I think for the long term, if not the medium term, that is going to be problematic for Australia, very problematic.
Yeah, and meanwhile, Australia has ended up being with Saudi Arabia or Brazil, unlike the Europeans or the Biden forces in the US, um, unlike Canada. Um, and I'm even looking at the rush to renewables in India and the announcement by Xi Jinping that offers some hope that the massive investment in coal-fired power that was part of the Chinese response to the COVID economic downturn might not go ahead. Australia, Australia could very much be a carbon outlier. I think it would be an uncomfortable place for the Australian public to be, but I, I for one, have got no reservations about highlighting that that's where we will end up if those dynamics fall into place. Yeah, I think that somehow within the federal government and I think among federal politicians on both sides of the divide here, there is little understanding that within the global climate talks, within that framework of getting to net zero by 2050, there is an understanding by most countries that there is a limited budget for the amount of emissions that can go into the atmosphere. And when I look at the plans on the table in Australia, especially for a gas-led recovery, especially to, to look at the number of uh, gas developments that's on the government's wish list, there seems to be an understanding or a belief, I should say, in Australia, in Canberra, that Australia doesn't have to be part of that global budget on emissions and that somehow we will, as a, as a rich first world country, we will be able to go to the climate talks and say, East Timor, don't develop your gas interests, even though you're impoverished. Uh, Papua New Guinea, don't you develop yours. President Erdogan, don't you develop your gas resources under the Black Sea because we in Australia need that big share of that budget so we can develop ours. And I think, how will that go down in Glasgow in 2021? But there doesn't, I don't know what you think, Bob, but I don't think there's a real understanding in the federal political parties uh, that this is a, you know, this is a limited opportunity here and Australia is not going to be given a free pass. Yeah, I understand. But if Canberra doesn't understand it, the boardrooms and investment houses do. And they'd be worried about putting money, for example, into some of these gas projects, gas-fired power station or the development of gas fields, as Liveris has recommended, if pressure on a future Australian government is going to see them closed down. They won't have the, the 30 or 40 year life that they need as investors to get their investment back. So I think, I think the decision's going to be made for us, I hope it is, by boardroom decisions, by decisions by banks and uh, investment banks. But why, why a clever country like Australia got it so wrong, failed to come up, to settle on some smart way of pricing carbon to make a a gradual, non-threatening transition. What would you say? The, the sheer power of the carbon sector here or smart political organisation on the conservative side, Bernardi and, and Hugh Morgan? Um, the influence of 
News Corporation? What, 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 what's been decisive? Fundamentally, of course, I think you can't go past the fact that we, as a first world country, were in incredibly advantaged by the fossil fuel industry. And so, so much of the country's export wealth and certainly uh, a lot of the wealth in the regions in WA, Queensland, the Hunter Valley uh, came from that. And when this big decision had to be made about the other side of that ledger, how much it would cost us in the long term because of climate change, there was a natural reluctance to look at what we had to do. I think into that came uh, the, the power of the political organisations that really wanted to exploit this for political advantage, both with their enemies across the aisle, but sadly with their internal party enemies as well. And I think we've now got to the stage where this terrible toxicity of politics in climate change has become as much a political weapon as it is protecting the fossil fuel industry. And I think we've got to really separate that out if we're going to move beyond this. Uh, because as long as people uh, in the main political parties use this as a weapon to thump their enemies, the politics of climate change is not going to move on. Well, Marion Wilkinson, thank you very much. Marion, author of The Carbon Club, one I can recommend. It reads like a, like a thriller and says a lot about this country of ours, Australia, um, and the even as the dynamics are changing so dramatically. Uh, attitudes in Europe and the prospect of a, a change of administration in the United States and real policies on climate out of Washington. Thanks tonight to Mark Spencer at Climactic Podcasts for the recording of Joel Gerges. Also to... We Don't Have Time, Global Broadcast from Sweden, for the talk by Professor Johan Rockström and from Nigel Tipping. Also to the Institute for Sustainable Futures for the conversation between Bob Carr and Marion Wilkinson. Her book, The Carbon Club, is a great history of just how we got to this pivotal moment where the gas-led recovery from COVID is on the cards. And breaking news today is the fact that Santos's Narrabri gas project has got conditional approval to go ahead from the Independent Planning Authority in the Sydney. This is over the absolute opposition of thousands and thousands of farmers and city people who know what the impacts will be. I spoke to Coral Winter, who was out protesting today. Lock the gate calculated we've made 11,000 submissions in this latest round of hearings, 96% yes. of them against it. Yes. You know, so this, I don't, you know, is, and it's also, I mean, it's an end of democracy, really. There's no democratic process I was in going all to of this. say that. The most disillusioning thing is that, you you know, you tell people on this radio program, I have lots of people who say, oh, write to your MP about such and so, all the topics that we interview people about and people believe that there's some justice there but it's obviously not we've also interviewed tonight marion wilkinson about the carbon club you know her new book and it's obvious that that's if 90 percent of the submissions to the independent 
Planning Commission are against the project and yet they give the green light to it. It's obviously there's carbon money. Just People are absolutely committed to saving this forest. They've seen what's happened in um, Chinchilla. Yeah. And what, what the coal seam gas extraction did to that countryside. We went up there and it's, it's beautiful countryside, especially around um, Coonabarabran. It's, uh, it's where the farmers, where we, you know, there's an enormous amount of wheat produced there, um, canola. Yeah. Um, there's an enormous amount of number of cattle and sheep farms. I mean, an enormous amount of produce is growing there. It's sort of the, the um, wheat, well, the wheat belt of you know, New South Wales. That mm. means... They, and they're totally reliant on bore water from the Great Artesian Basin. Well, if that's going to get contaminated, it'll take probably a bit of time, but it will get contaminated because all this is going to leak into the aquifers. Yeah. Um, and it's also where, you know, I didn't realise, but because Pilliga Forest is a lot of um, sand and very, very sandy mm. sandstone, well, it's the um, source of the renewal of water into the Great Artesian Basin. That's where... Um, they, all the water, the rainwater pours into that uh, sandstone basin there and collects and then filters down into the Great Artesian Basin. So that's going to be lost as well. That'll be all contaminated. You know, and, and the health effects, people don't realise the health effects of this poisoning over the water and the, and the land and the air. You know, yeah. the kids get blood noses, the kids get... Um, um, skin diseases. You, you can't use any water out of your water tanks because all the fallout from the burning off of the flares, all that's um, with a whole lot of benzene, um, mercury, all the sort of muck coming out yeah. of the seam. Coal seam gas will then um, be liberated into the airways and the waterways. And people are going to get sick because it all becomes contaminated. You know, they don't realise. But, uh, yeah, it's just a disastrous. And people up there determined to fight yeah. it. I, this won't go, um, you know, without a massive fight. Even it's a very sad day today. But what are, the, what are the groups? What sort of, what are the names of some of the groups that are active in that? There's, well, there's a whole lot of groups. There's the Northwestern Alliance, which is a, a farmer's group. Yeah. Um, up in Narrabri, there's a, another Northwestern Protection Alliance, another a separate group. There's Lock the Gate is involved. Well, today Stop Adani groups got involved. Water for the Rivers were involved. Were there? Extinction Rebellion were there uh, today. Hello, everyone. I'm Julian. And I'm Chris, and we're from Climate for Change. And we've got actions that you can take right now. So this week, we've released a new briefing on a claim put forward by a group of Torres Strait Islanders to the United Nations Human Rights Committee. The claim was submitted last year due to the government's inaction on climate change and its impacts on their fundamental human rights. However, the Morrison government last month asked the UN Committee to dismiss this claim. Climate for Change's Members of Parliament Engagement Group has got you covered with a bunch of up-to-date resources on how to reach out and successfully engage with your MP on this topic and many more. Over to you, Julie. And make sure that you head to climateforchange.org.au and sign up to the Climate Update for more news in action. We'll see you all next week. Keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye.